Hello everybody, I'm Chris Kaufman and welcome to the Ideas Having Sex podcast. Each show, I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss social science, philosophy, politics, history, or anything I find interesting. Today, my guest is economic historian Mark Koyama. Mark is the co-author, along with Jared Rubin, of the book How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth, which is what we discuss today. This is my conversation with Mark Koyama. Mark, welcome to the show. Chris, yeah, great to be here. How did you come to be interested in the topic of the origins of economic growth, and why is it such an important topic? Well, this is the central topic, I think, in, in economic history. So I think when people study economic history, the main motivation is to understand um, where, how we've come to where we are, how our material living standards have increased dramatically relative to our, our ancestors in the past. And um, you know, the Industrial Revolution looms very large in, in economic history, but it's also now become a, a more global question. So it's the, the question isn't just how did Britain get the Industrial Revolution, but how did kind of... Uh, economic growth arise in general, how did it spread, um, what was the economic kind of life of the world, uh, you know, how did how did countries um, perform economically prior to the Industrial Revolution? All these questions are interrelated and, and closely, close, really part of this overall story about how the world uh, became rich. Uh, specifically, I've long, long taught, a, taught a course on, on economic history, and that course has always been built around the question of how we got rich or how the Industrial Revolution began. And I think Jared, uh, my co-author on this book, has also, he's been doing the same. So we've both basically been, for more than 10 years, roughly 10 years, been teaching this type of course to um, to undergraduates who are not necessarily economics majors, people from you know a broad array of backgrounds. And they find this question pretty compelling and pretty interesting. And um, the, the book then emerged, I think, out of how both Jared and I um, taught this co- these courses, and then we, when when the publisher was interested in in kind of you know taking taking us on as a as a book project, we we leapt at that opportunity. So if you're teaching courses to non econ majors, you might have a pretty good answer to this question. I think the average person might have a hard time believing or understanding the concept that the world is rich. The book is called How the World Became Rich. Can you clarify that claim for someone who might be surprised to hear that? Historically, it's undoubtedly the case that both measured by obviously total GDP, but also per capita GDP, we're, we're far richer than we've been at any other point in history. And, and you know, orders of magnitude more relative to before the Industrial Revolution. I think where, one reason people, well, there are two parts to this. One which is easier to believe. And the one which is easier to believe is that we're much richer than our ancestors say in America or the United Kingdom or Western Europe, we're richer than our ancestors were 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago. I think that's that's easier to believe, even though some people are worried about the stagnation of living standards in the US in, say, the last 20 or 30 years. I think that's easy to believe. What people find harder to recognize or what's less well recognized is that actually the world as a whole has gotten a lot richer. So often we're influenced by um, the view we had maybe growing up or this idea of the, of the term the third world 
or pictures we see of kind of uh, of people in dire poverty and starving and in some of the poorest parts of the world. We don't quite recognize the progress which has taken place in, say, a lot of Africa in the last 20 years. So um, it's no longer the case that, you know, most people live in absolute poverty in the world, and it's a small minority of just very rich countries who, who, um, who live in affluence. Actually, the majority of people live in middle-income countries. So countries like China or Brazil, and obviously, there are a lot of poor people in China and Brazil, or a lot of poor people in India. But the average person in China or Brazil is much richer than the average person in England in 1700. And the average person in a wealthy Western country is just orders of magnitude richer yeah, than almost anyone. 18, 18, 20 times if you're going by measured uh, GDP. Now, there's some limitations with obviously using measured GDP because, you know, in terms of saying medical treatment, the richest person in the world in, in the 18th or 19th century could have died from, you know, an infected wound, which we, we would cure with, with penicillin. Even the richest person in the past didn't have access to the technology we have access to. And so by some measures, say access to healthcare, even yeah, an average person in a rich country today is a lot richer than a very rich person in the past. Yeah, you spent some time reviewing the ordinary medical family tragedies that would still befall wealthy, you know, noble and royal families hundreds of years ago, despite their wealth and their status, they might still lose seven out of 10 babies that were born. Yeah, so that's an example of Queen Anne, who um, who famously lost all her, or none of her children left adulthood. So that would be routine occurrence, um, even amongst the richest families, that most of their children or many of their children would not survive uh, childhood due to just either the dangers of giving birth, uh, basically for women, getting pregnant was almost like going off to war. Like you, you had a non-trivial chance of not surviving, of not surviving it. And then children died uh, in abundance in, in the pre-industrial world. And so obviously, you know, that, that by those dimensions, we're definitely richer. Uh, but even by, you know, more conventional uh, monetary metrics, we're still much richer than we were in the past. Can you set the stage for why this question, the question of explaining how the world became rich, why is it such a puzzle? What would a good explanation, what facts would a good explanation have to grapple with to satisfactorily explain this puzzle? So I think we're um, attuned to think about the world in a zero-sum fashion. And so, um, you know, if you're not trained in economics and you don't understand, or you're not fully aware of the scale of this transformation, you might think about this in terms of, you know, transfer of, of of, of income from one group of people to another group of people. So the accounts um, of the rise of the West based on empire and colonization sometimes have this feature, like the West looted places like India, made them poorer, and that was the source of economic growth. And our point is not that this looting or exploitation didn't happen, because obviously it did, but it's not necessarily um, at, the, at the heart of answering the question of why we got richer. In, in, in a trivial sense, there just wasn't that much to loot relative to how much economies have grown since the Industrial Revolution. You, you know, in past empires looted pl- plenty, and, 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 and so doing, they enriched a small elite, but they weren't able to you know, transform their economies. That's part of, I think, uh, how some people think about it. The other, other way people think about it is if it's somehow 
uh, just a function of, say, technology or just a function of, of just capital accumulation. John Maynard Keynes talks about economic growth and he talks about how it's going to allow people in our time, actually, in, in the era of his grandchildren, to live uh, lives of, of leisure and not to work. But he kind of gives us a kind of economic growth where basically there's a stock of capital and it keeps growing over time, like just like you know, interest accumulates. And that's what drives economic growth. But in some sense, it's a non-answer because why is capital becoming more valuable over time he doesn't tell us but actually it's because you know productivity is going up uh trade is increasing the division of labor is growing uh, all those factors similarly sometimes when we think about um economic growth from a standard economic textbook perspective if you think about the solo model which is often taught in economic growth classes or in the, in development classes the solo model has a lot of insights but the main driver of economic growth in the solo model is technology but technology is exogenous in the solar model. It's coming. It's coming. Uh, it's just coming out from outside the model. And people think, oh, just you know, we get new technological change, new, new innovations occur. That makes us richer. But it doesn't tell us either why are some societies more technologically innovative than others, and it doesn't tell us anything about why are the technological developments we're getting. Uh, getting translated into goods or products which are coming to market and making us, uh, you know, better off as consumers or making us more productive as as producers. So it, it has nothing about the market and the role the market plays in transforming, you know, innovations into into actual economic goods. So I think both of those things are missing in in, in, in kind of the, the way people often think about growth, and you really have to think about it both through a historical lens and also through the lens of kind of economics. So there's a popular model of economic growth that makes the primary driver innovation and technological progress, right? What, what was that called? The solo model. So yeah, so if, yeah, if you know, if it's a standard model, we teach undergraduates in, in, in say macroeconomics. I teach it. Um, it's a very good model, um, but it's it doesn't explain technological progress. So it's fair to say that you you take that model on its own terms, but that just pushes the mystery, the question back one step as to what explains why some areas in some times become hubs of innovation. Exactly, exactly. And so, there have been other attempts to do that. Like, you know, like many economists know that's a limitation of a solo model. And so a lot of growth theory in the 1990s and 2000s was about what about R&D? What about ways to increase innovation? But, uh, but those focus on the modern economy, not necessarily what was happening historically. I was just speaking with James Audison about his book. And he he's a scholar of Adam Smith. And he made a big point to say there was a reason his book was called, you know, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, not the poverty of nations. We don't really need to explain poverty. We need to explain wealth. That's the historical puzzle. Um, can you say something about some of the leading theories of the day, particularly Malthus's explanation for why wealth could never get off the ground past a certain point? Yeah, of course. So in some sense, Adam Smith is is writing before the really big explosion in wealth that occurs after 1500, but he's writing at a time where it's evident already that some parts of the world, particularly in his day, the Netherlands was the richest part of the world, then, then maybe England, were richer than other parts of the world, say Scotland, where he was from from originally. Um, so he was aware of these contrasts, and that's what he was writing about. So um, Malthus is a younger contemporary of, of Smith, and He's building on Adam Smith in many ways, and he's a brilliant uh, uh, thinker and writer. But his observation is that going back through human history, there wasn't, as, as far as he could see, a tendency towards sustained economic growth. And actually, Smith 
on this point is um, has some nuance because people disagree about the interpretation of Smith, whether Smith really foresees sustained modern economic growth or whether he, like like Malthus and Ricardo, is somewhat pessimistic. But Ma- Malthus is like, look, there are periods of, of, of prosperity were followed by periods of poverty. So it's it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's cyclical. And why is that? Well, because of population growth. And so basically, as soon as um, incomes rise, more people survive to adulthood. Fewer children die because people are better fed. And, fewer, and, and pe- people live longer. And so you get crowding you get more and more people during more prosperous times and he was working with an economic model where he was thinking about most people as being farmers most people being peasants living on the land and so if you think about what determines the productivity of a farmer on the land well particularly their marginal what economists call their marginal product well um the marginal product is highest when you have just a few people working on that land. But as you keep adding more and more peasants to working a fixed plot of land, the marginal contribution of each additional peasant working the land will go down. And so there's a diminishing return to diminishing returns to labor. And so Malthus's prediction it was that you have a period of prosperity, maybe a new plow gets invented. So everyone gets a bit richer. Uh, more children survive into adulthood, more people have kids, they're bigger families, population growth goes up. As population growth goes up, the marginal productivity of the workers goes down and wages start to go down. And so um, any any uh, period of prosperity would be followed by a period of increasing poverty. And eventually wages would come back either to subsistence or to some level, maybe above subsistence, but that would be have to be maintained by uh by uh, constraining fertility somehow. And so Malthus's view, um, sustained economic growth was probably impossible because it was almost impossible to to control fertility in the long run. He thought if you did practice enough what he called virtue, maybe you can get richer. But in general, population growth will outstrip any uh, increases in productivity. And so we wouldn't get an explosion of wealth or sustained economic growth. And so Malthus's pessimism is broadly shared by many of the classical economists, as I suggested. And Malthus is accurate. His model fits the data very well up to the point in which he's writing, more or less. Is it fair to say that he, he was surprised on both ends of his prediction, that on the one end, you know, innovation and wealth increases outstripped his expectation. And on the other end, voluntary birth control methods also outstripped his expectations. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he doesn't, he's not explicit about how fast technological growth will be. I think he rules out rapid, rapid, more rapid growth than he'd see. But yeah, he, he certainly, and what he doesn't necessarily predict is what's known as the demographic transition. The idea that once people reach a certain level of income, um, they both have the desire and also the technology potentially to limit to limit uh, fertility, and so you see that beginning first in France, actually around about the time Malthus is writing, but only in England really after 1860, 1870, you get families diminishing um, the number of children they have for a variety of means, uh, not not necessarily modern means, but they're spacing or they're they're they're, they're, they're practicing some kind of um, you know uh, basic birth control, which doesn't eliminate pregnancies, but it reduces the probability of pregnancies, and so you see the family size start to go down. And that's actually key to the, to the really rapid increase in incomes per capita you start to see late 19th century, early 20th century. So before we get into your and Jared's particular explanation or leanings on this question, the first half of the book is a literature review of five leading theories to explain how the world became rich. 
Uh, and those are institutions, culture, geography, demographics, and exploitation or, or colonialism. Yeah, that's right. Can you say a little bit about the geographic explanation? So um, geography clearly, clearly matters. Um, the biggest kind of advocates for the determinist, uh, geography having a deterministic role, I think are um, uh, Jared Diamond, who wrote a very famous book in the late 1990s called Guns, Germs and Steel, which really argues that in some sense geography is almost everything. These geographical good fortune of Eurasians, particularly the western end of, of Eurasia, um, in the Neolithic period, or the, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago, somehow kind of like traces its way through history to then determine the great divergence and, and the origins of economic growth. Um, and then in modern, modern, amongst modern economists, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, who's you know famous for his work on transition economics and on development economics, Jeffrey Sachs in the 1990s and early 2000s wrote a series of papers and books really arguing that geography was determining uh, a lot of the reasons why some countries were rich and some countries were poor. So countries in sub-Saharan Africa, he particularly would, would say, were landlocked and they were in the malaria belt. And all of these things basically impeded or limited their prospects for economic growth and development. And our, our perspective isn't to say that geography doesn't matter, because it does matter, we think. Um, and we outline all of these ways in which geography does affect economic outcomes. So it is indeed true. But if you're landlocked, then you don't have access and you don't have access to a port, then it's difficult to say export textiles. So if you think about how Bangladesh has kind of ascended the ranks of, of, of countries and it's, you know, it's no longer a very poor country anymore. Bangladesh is where, you know, a lot of our t-shirts and jeans and so on get made. And Bangladesh is fortunate in some sense because it's on the coast. Unfortunate for other reasons, it's vulnerable to climate change, but because it's on the coast, it can it can export uh, goods which are low value to and high volume, like t-shirts. Whereas if you're, you know, Botswana, another relatively successful developing country in Africa, it's difficult to do that because it doesn't make sense to, to commission planes to transport, you know, cheap t-shirts to, to the marketplace. Whereas it does make sure it does make sense to carry them in a in a in a cargo ship. Um, so geography matters. Now, many ways beyond the ones I've suggested, but geography struggles with two things. One is the timing of economic growth. So, you know, some countries are more favored by geography than others. England is more favored than Botswana, let's say, but that doesn't tell us why economic growth begins in England in 1800 and not, you know, much earlier or much later. And the other thing which geography struggles with are reversals of fortune. This is something that Darren Asimoglu, Simon Johnson and, and Jim Robinson emphasized in the early 2000s. But um, if, if geography favors one region on another, it can't explain why that region once was richer than, than another and why they suddenly switched positions. So, um, Mexico, what's now Mexico and what was the Aztec Empire was more economically developed than what's now the New York region in 1500. But now it's switched around, it's switched around in the 19th century or, or 18th century, but, but geography doesn't help explain that. So that's one. And then the other one, just to finish, is geography can be um, adapted, right? Geography interacts with other stuff. You can, you can invest in a in infrastructure to improve your geography. And so there's an extent to which geography may matter, but it may matter uh, according to how it interacts with other factors like institutions. There was another element of geography as an explanation, which I think still struggles with the same 
explanatory variables you mentioned. I'm not, I don't recall having read this before, but it was interesting how latitudinal versus longitudinal a, a land area or a continent is. So like Eurasia is wide across, which means large swaths of human settlements are on relatively in relatively similar climates and for that reason can maybe interact with each other more readily, whereas the Americas and much of Africa are more longitudinal. And so they span very many diverse climates, possibly making it more difficult for people to interact with each other, which is kind of what you said. It's geography interacting with another factor. It's geography interacting with the ease with which humans can interact with each other. Yeah, so this is a thesis made famous by Jared Diamond, and, and it's explaining why, like, so, you know, the Mayans um, uh, had, had, had like, you know, certain technologies, uh, but they didn't move far, like, across North America or South America. So, you know, technology in the Americas was very localized. It didn't spread very far. Whereas uh, in Eurasia, you see technologies diffuse, say agricultural technologies and know-how diffuse faster. And, and and the hypothesis, which I think is, is is supported by the evidence, is that it's it's because when you move north to south, your climatic, uh, you know, your climate just changes really radically. Uh, but when you move east to west, it doesn't change as much. And so crops which work in kind of, you know, uh, China might also work in Iran and parts of Iraq. They might also work in Turkey and Italy. And so that partly explains for why once agriculture is invented, it diffuses much more rapidly in, in, in Eurasia than in the Americas and other technologies by um, uh, a, similar, a similar pattern. Another one that has received some popular press today is exploitation or colonialism as a model of why certain parts of the world became rich. Um, the 1619 Project and the New History of Capitalism movement, I think, digs into this explanation a lot. Can you say something about the the strengths and weaknesses of colonialism and slavery and exploitation in general as an explanation for why some parts of the world became rich? So what I should emphasize is an important part of the economies we're observing is the fact that they were involved in, in colonial exploitation and in, say, the slave trade. What we're definitely not saying is this was like irrelevant to understanding 18th century England. 18th century England is full of people who got rich either by looting India. There's a guy, there's a family of prime ministers, you know, William Pitt, the elder and the younger, and they're dead. Grand, the granddad of the younger Pitt is called Diamond Pitt because he brought back a really big diamond from India. And the Caribbean is also another source of wealth uh, for English elites. And there's some ongoing research I saw more recently since writing the book, which does suggest that it could have played a role in some of the economic development going on in England, this, this source of wealth English elites have in the Caribbean. And, and so it's definitely playing a role in the economy. The question is, other economies also have access to a lot of colonial riches. Spain is a is a classic example, as had previous previous economies. And so, how closely do we tie in that kind of colonial exploitation and enrichment with the specific things that we think are driving the industrial revolution in in, in England? So that's where the kind of the crux of the argument is. And some of the people in the new history of capitalism try to do that. And like, so one example um, is Sven Becker, who argues that cotton textiles was crucial. Now, that is the most plausible one in the following sense, that cotton textiles was a key industry in the Industrial Revolution. And so you, they did need a supply of cotton, raw cotton, 
um, being supplied to to England that they could then spin and then and then turn into into textiles, which they would then sell. Um, now the question is 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 why do they do they need slavery or not need slavery? American slavery slave produced cotton comes online a bit late. It, you know, it's after Eli Eli Whitney events for cotton gin. So it's really a nineteenth century phenomenon, not an eighteenth century phenomenon. And the, the issue is is what would have happened if that cotton supply had been cut off, and the general answer most economic historians give is, look, India produced cotton itself, Egypt produced cotton. Now, it would have been more costly to use than American cotton. So you can imagine a world where there isn't the slave produced cotton coming from the Americas. And that's a world where the machines have to adapt slightly. There's, there's a lot of technical details I won't go into about the different threads and different quality of cotton from different parts of the world. But they would have, they would have adapted. The cost of cotton might have been a little bit higher. That means the cotton sector in England is a little bit smaller. But England still becomes an industrial economy. Steel is still being produced. Uh, the cotton sector is still growing. There's still a massive cotton industry. It's just got slightly higher input costs. So it's very hard to say that the, the cotton textile industry or industrial revolution overall hinged crucially, critically, in some meaningful way on the existence of slavery or, or not slavery. And, and as we know, once slavery was abolished in the South, the South still produced cotton, right? Cotton was still produced by sharecropping and uh, by African-American cotton pickers. It's just they weren't slaves, they, they were wage earners. And that, again, um, you know, the, the fact that you're not exploiting the slaves anymore probably means that cotton is a bit more expensive. So the size of the cotton sector goes down a bit, but it doesn't fundamentally affect this transformation that's occurred. And that's the same, I think, with sugar as well. Um, why, so why, why are we down on, 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 on colonization as an explanation? Well, we think what's driving the cotton textile industry or what's driving the, the industrial revolution are the innovations which are taking place. And these innovations do not hinge in any way on slavery or in any critical way on slavery. They're not being funded directly by, by slavery or by um, colonial trade. So that's kind of uh, the, the, the overall assessment. So colonization and the slave trade are important parts of British economy. But without them, I still think you would have had the Industrial Revolution. Seems like slavery and exploitation broadly suffers from a similar weakness as geography in that you're talking about an institution and a practice that is ubiquitous across cultures and across history, more or less, not not to equal extents. But so it has a hard. it seems like it would have a hard time explaining timing. I, I guess the argument would be the Atlantic slave trade in particular was a boost to and, and you know, this particular era of colonialism. But it, I don't know, is that really is it really obviously true that there was more slavery or more colonialism there than there was in uh, the Saharan slave trade or other other slave trades throughout history? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it is. There's some special features of the transatlantic one, which might, you could argue, play a role. One is um, the triangular trade um, and, the, and the, sh the particular sugar nexus that's argued to be crucial. Um, but yeah, you have to make special arguments um, because Slavery was ubiquitous in the ancient world. We, if anything, historians think it had a negative effect. It you know, disencouraged industrialization. You can make arguments. I would just say it that way. I mean, the one the argument I saw most recently is that slave-based collateral was quite valuable for uh, British elites. They used it as a, a basis of collateral. So I don't want to say that it's totally, you know, nonsense or it's 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 inherently 
uh, implausible. I, th- I, th- I think that whatever argument based trans- is, that's based around slavery or colonial exploitation has to, as you suggest, pick up features which are unique to this this episode, and it has to show how they interact with the other other factors which must have been important, such as innovation and commercialization and, co- and commerce. And so far, that hasn't hasn't been done. Um, and even when, even if you have a, an accounting that will suggest that slavery has a, has some role. It's going to be small in my assessment. That's my my view. How do you think those scholars grapple with the... It seems apparent to me that the parts of, say, the United States most associated, most densely with slavery, are not what you would call the wealthiest or most enriched part of the United States. You know, the Deep South is is much poorer than parts of the United States yeah, that abolished slavery sooner. Yeah, they tried to deal with it by saying that even the Northern economy was enmeshed in the Southern slave system. So they, they, they say, look, yeah, they, they're part of one economic system. The South is pre- using the slaves to produce the inputs, say the cotton, and the North, the Northern factories are benefiting from that. Or they'll also say slave exports were then critical in supplying you know, the, the, the capital for, for industrialization. Or they'll say um, slave wealth was collateralized, and that led to financialization and financial development. Now, um, so they do have arguments, I think, around that. Nonetheless, they don't deal with the fact that the South had no cities, right? So there is a there is a book, and a, the author the author of a book is I've just forgotten that for a second. But there is a book showing that or arguing that in the South, at least, you know, it really had a ruralizing effect. There were no major cities, Richmond uh, or Atlanta or uh, Charleston were trivially small in 1860 relative to the northern cities. So, um, uh, what I, so what I'm saying is they have some arguments for why slavery in the South wasn't associated with industrialization. They want to argue benefit of the North. Um, so I don't want to say that arguments for nonsense, but I think they, they, they don't fully recognize the full cost of slavery. And I think there has been very good research suggesting that, yeah, absent slavery, if you take away slavery in the South, the Southern land plantation holders who were rich would have been poorer, poorer, but the South as a whole may have been more developed if they had had to pay the workers of the cotton uh, uh, agricultural kind of plantations wages. So I, I'm with you and I'm with the skeptics, but I don't think slavery is a is a growth enhancing institution on any margin. And I think any argument you have to say it is has to be very, very kind of um, arcane and 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 precisely constructed to show that here in this one setting, slavery was beneficial for industrialization or growth in some sense, but it wasn't in any other setting. And I think the bulk of the evidence suggests that slavery um, even though it did make specific individuals much richer, these like these southern you know plantation holders are really really getting rich on the basis of it. It doesn't make uh, either the south southern economy, industrial revolution, Britain, or America as a whole uh, richer. Do you think it's fair to say that wide access to slavery has some features in common with classic resource curse arguments that? elements of the South and, and you know, set the sectors of the economy that have so much access to slavery are hindered for similar reasons that some countries with large natural resource deposits become hindered because they're easily yeah. exploited. Yeah, so definitely. I think, I mean, there are different variants of resource curse. The most relevant one is probably the institutional one. And that's undoubtedly the case. But these, because of slavery, um, certain plantation holders, slaveholders in the South become very, very rich, and they use their wealth to entrench their position in local politics, and that that's not good for 
poor whites who don't own slaves. It's not good for industrial development. It's not good for enslaved people. It's not good for free blacks. It's only it's only good for that narrow class of plantation holders. And uh, I mean, and, and and in a political economy sense, it's, it's, it's even more devastating because it leads to this uh, extremely costly uh, civil war, which they they provoke through secession. Do you think that the exploitation explanation has more to say about? Well, it's I, I'm get I get two things from from your book. One that the explanation probably runs stronger towards why the exploited groups might have been hindered than why the exploiting group might have been helped. That's one. And then the other is that the main explanatory power from exploitation comes from how it interacts with culture and institutions. Is that, do I have that right? That's a great, great, great summary. So yeah, so exactly, exactly as you say. So I think, um, or non-economists, um, ordinary people, often have this wrong framing of the world, or in that they, they don't fully appreciate uh, the expansion and the size of a pie, as opposed to how a pie is distributed. So we have a presumption as humans, I think, to think about things in in equality terms, in distributional terms, thinking about winners and losers, uh, who who lost out, who benefited. And so um, actually, these two things could be separate. Something like slavery could have done tremendous harm to African-Americans, to African societies, yet only benefited a small number of people in the West, not have benefited the majority of Americans or the majority of, of kind of, of people in the British Isles. So it's, you know, the, the two things, hurting one group doesn't mean you benefit another group equally. So so slavery, I think the um, evidence suggests that it had a lot of negative um, consequences, both in the Americas, but also in, in, in African countries. Uh, the work of Nathan Nunn is, is very influential there. He basically shows that countries which were involved or exported more slaves historically have uh, worse institutions. They have lower trusts, even, even to this day. And that explains some of the variation in, 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 in poverty levels that you see in sub-Saharan Africa. Other examples of this are the way kind of um, colonies were governed. So um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, there was this, this particular feature where borders were arbitrary. And local group, some lo- local groups were empowered, but colonial rulers would often pick a particular ethnicity and think these guys are the natural rulers. So it would put them in positions of power, uh, and other groups would be would, would, would lose out and would not, would not have access to public goods or would be penalized through various regulations. And to these um, uh, kind of bad institutions, costly, extractive institutions have persisted uh, and have had a persistent effect to this day. And so there is a plausible case for saying that colonial uh, rule impacted these countries negatively on average. Even India. So India is a country where you have this uh, very divergent uh, set of opinions. Uh, Indian nationalists uh, write books where they say, like, the English were terrible. Like, the English deindustrialized India, the British, rather. The British uh, really impoverished India. It was a rich country. The British left it poor. And their legacy is absolutely terrible. And, you know, they should be blamed for everything they owe India compensation. On the other hand, you have kind of colonial ap- apologists who say, look, India was really well governed by the British. They brought it peace. They built railroads. These railroads you know, uh, a lasting legacy of colonial rule, and it's really good for India, and the Indians should be great, everlastingly grateful for the British. They left it rule of law, they left it democracy, and so on. And, and and I think, you know, a lot of empirical research has, has gone on, and it's fair to say that both perspectives are wrong. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's, it's the case that 
India was in economic decline before the British took over. The economic decline of, of, of India was was partly what allowed the British to take it take it over. Um, and so the story where Britain deindustrializes India is kind of a side note. It happens, but it happens really because British technology is just better by this point, and they're, they're out producing the Indian producers. So there's nothing really malevolent about this. I mean, British do impose free trade on India, but the, the, the story that Britain like really made India worse off is, is, is not really uh, plausible. But the idea that Britain benefited India is also not consistent with the evidence. Uh, what you see in India under British rule is very slow economic growth. Per capita incomes barely rise. They're still vulnerable to famines. They do build the railroads. The railroads are good. They help integrate markets. They help um, uh, the economy develop. But in other respects, they don't do very much. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to say that on net, colonial rule is particularly beneficial for the average Indian. Um, so, you know, colonialism did have a negative effect on net, although, but it's variable. Uh, there's some places which did better. Uh, parts of Africa seem to have done quite well under British colonial rule, but other parts like did terribly under you know, the Belgium rule in the Congo. It was absolutely devastating uh, and a human rights tragedy and almost I mean, basically genocidal. So, um, the picture, when you look historically, is a mixed bag. Uh, but I don't think you sh people should claim colonial rule on net was 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 anything uh, good. Although there were good elements to it, but the but it's also not responsible for the industrial revolution, or fully responsible for why these countries remain poor. They were poor before the various colonial powers arrived. So I think what we do is, yeah, we de-emphasize the importance of colonialism in explaining the onset of economic growth, but we we fully acknowledge its role in explaining uh, why some countries caught up to the economic frontier slower or quicker than others. So in some sense, you know, Japan was the first non-Western country to, to experience kind of sustained economic growth, and Japan was was ever colonized. It, you know, it had some interventions and interference from Western powers, but it wasn't it wasn't subjected subjected to colonization. And that was probably all to its benefit. So you go over these five different explanations, and you acknowledge that all of them have something valuable to add, something valuable to say, but you probably lean most heavily into the institutional and cultural explanations? I think so, because when we turn to uh, to explaining kind of the, the particular case of industrial revolution in Britain, and why Britain, why not other countries, why Western Europe first, and then why Britain amongst Western European countries, there it seems the institutional and cultural stories have the biggest uh, bite. Can you say something about what kinds of institutions and what kinds of cultural features seem to be most important for getting uh, this enrichment off the ground, getting inno innovative populations off the ground? The story we tell of, of Western Europe is partly a story of institutions which can constrain the power of, of the state, partly, but not exclusively. So um, in particular, in, in the English case, it's really the rise of parliaments, but also this is a European case in general. And so representative institutions, these are political institutions which are able to put, impose some kind of checks of balance on, on, on the autocratic power of the state. And now these institutions, it's important to emphasize, do not have to lead to growth. And so there are plenty of examples of European countries, uh, Bohemia, Sheila Ogilvy has written about this, or Poland. So there's nothing, there's no sufficient condition. You constrain the state and you automatically get growth because these parliaments, these representative bodies are, are really uh, re uh, representing elites. 
And these elites could use the parliaments um, for their own benefit to predate and extract resources from the rest of the population. But they do seem to be maybe a necessary condition because we're not aware of a very kind of autocratic society. We don't think a, a totally autocratic society would have been able to generate the innovation that we see emerging in Europe and England in the 17th and 18th century. So part of the story is institutions which constrain the state, not exclusively, not always, not in all cases, not all, all times. But when we think about the contrast between Europe and China, uh, China has property rights, um, at least functionally or functional ones. It has markets, it has trade. But the big difference between Europe and China is that in China, you have an emperor who can basically do what he likes, more or less. He's constrained to some degree, but not anything like the degree European rulers are constrained. So uh, that's part of it. And then going alongside that is some measure of a rule of law, some measure of protection of property rights. Uh, again, all of these things are, are kind of messy. We don't want to claim that the institutions that England has in the 17th or 18th century are ideal or, you know, always good, but they seem to be uh, flexible enough to allow parts of the economy to develop relatively unimpeded from intervention by kind of people who might want to shut them, shut them down. Uh, culturally, um, the real kind of uh, key thing is a culture which encourages innovation. So this is really where the work of uh, John McKeer uh, plays an plays a important role in our work. So there are many um, cultural um, correlates of economic growth. The issue sometimes is, 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 is discerning the chicken from the egg. So, uh, you know, some cultural traits might emerge because of economic growth, or as well as causes. So it's very difficult to unpick causality here. Um, and some cultural characteristics may not be that important. Uh, uh, we don't think necessarily that uh, Weber's concept of a Protestant work ethic is, is, is as important as people used to think, but a culture that encourages innovation and is open to commerce and, and, and the market seem to be important. But of course, these don't emerge without an economy which is commercial and, and, and innovative. So it's, it is a chicken and egg problem. Uh, so here, Mikoski emphasizes uh, particularly a rhetorical shift to valuing bourgeois uh, virtues more. McKeer's emphasis is more on uh, innovation and valuing innovations. This idea associated with Francis Bacon that science is possible and then science can be put to use for improving economic outcomes uh, and knowledge is power, uh, put simply. Those are all critical things and they, they interact. So uh, again, this is McKeer's stuff. What you get in the 17th century is a society of intellectuals who pan Europe, spread across Europe, and they interact with each other and they generate new ideas. And what do you need for this Republic of Science to exist? Well, you need um, certain institutions like um, uh, relatively free communication. You need uh, things like a press, uh, sorry, uh, you need a printing press. You need a postal system so that people can write letters to each other in different countries. And you need um, a relatively uh, free economy that people can test these ideas and take them to the marketplace. So you have, on the one hand, this cultural shift that looks at science as something practical and that can lead to, to general human progress, as opposed to lone geniuses like Leonardo da Vinci uh, working, in their, working in their studies. And on the other hand, you have a cultural shift that starts to admire and think highly of commercial activity and innovation and entrepreneurship. 
a lot of people don't necessarily know how much, you know, throughout the ancient world and the medieval world that, you know, merchants and commercial activity, even if it made you wealthy, was was not a noble or admirable field. I don't know if you if you want to say more about that, but that it was by the real elites of society often looked down upon. How much we look down upon it is a little always hard to know because um it's but it's always been somewhat tainted. There are certainly in the Middle Ages, it was illegal for French nobles to be involved in, in, in trade and commerce. Um, similarly, uh, Roman patricians were not, not allowed. So there's always been commerce and trade, but it was looked down upon. And the argument is, is so long as it was looked down upon, it was somehow self, it's somehow self-limiting because people might exit commerce once you become successful. Now, I'm somewhat, I buy this cultural shift argument. I'm not always convinced how much expansionary power it has, because even in England in the 19th century, after industrialization, you still see some of these attitudes, right? You see the, the contempt the old aristocracy have for new money. So these, these attitudes are very slow to change. But there is certainly a change about um, the role of trade and commerce and the value it, it, it can have. Yeah, uh, just to illustrate, you know, the Vikings, you know, like in Viking times, like if you had, if a man wore some treasure or jewelry, the question is like, you know, did you buy this? That would be shameful. Did you take it from an enemy you killed? That's virtuous. Obviously. That attitude, in some sense, had to be transformed for, uh, you know, commercial activity to become uh, high status. Um, but even now, you know, people people uh, sneer at you know uh, the rich, or they sneer at you know they, they campaign against tech innovators because somehow uh, how they got their wealth wasn't wasn't was was ill gotten. They, they think uh, so. These attitudes are still with us. Uh, so so they did change. The question is how much that change explains the modern world. So if you were to just summarize relatively quickly, what ultimately is your short explanation for how the world became rich or what what factors were the most important i know there are a lot of preconditions yeah. you talk about it's exactly. not an answer <laughs> it's not an answer in the book that you can give in a sentence uh, the, the, the short answer is innovation right that's the one word answer but the one word answer doesn't tell you very much because it doesn't tell you why and when uh innovation occurs uh in the 18th century in england and, and not elsewhere so the short answer is innovation the longer answer is to say there are a lot of preconditions uh, which we document, as you just said, uh, which make England a possible candidate. There had been other possible candidates. Renaissance Florence was a possible candidate. Song China was a possible candidate. But England, by 1700, it's relatively urbanized. It's relatively it's commercialized. It's a trading economy. It has these institutions which are constraining the king. Um, it, it has a large number of people involved in commerce and trade in the marketplace. Um, so it's in a good position. But what makes it special? Well, innovation. And I think here that the two explanations, uh, leading explanations. One is Bob Allen's explanation, which is about particular configuration of what he calls factor prices. So the price of labor relative to the price of energy and um machinery and that has to be high enough and if that's high enough it really pays to do labor saving innovation so that's history for why of these candidate societies which could have industrialized britain is the one which does um, whereas mccare's argument uh, is based on the particular intellectual environment whereby as we said you had this republic of letters these intellectuals but you also had um, handyman and craftsmen and 
non-academics, non-intellectuals participating in this world, going to the same coffee shops, reading the same journals as these scientists and innovators. So a real interest in taking the scientific innovations to the marketplace. And he's now adding to that explanation by saying that England really had a very uniquely skilled workforce in 1700. And that skilled workforce, they were literate, they were numerate, they were interested in improving things. That that configuration was what was really responsible for the, the, the why the British economy was so innovative. And so some combination of these factors seems to be decisive. Are those two explanations, they almost seem like they are just different sides of the same explanation of having a highly skilled workforce, because the highly skilled workforce has high wages, which makes it pay more to innovate capital innovations so that you can have a more capital intensive rather than a more labor intensive operation. And on the same side, the highly skilled workforce is poised to take advantage in practical tinkering ways of this new culture of science and progress that's that's pervading. And I think that's exactly right. And I think, so, so they are complementary. The thing is, is when authors come up with theories, they, they tend to want them to be the theory. And so um, Robert Allen and John McKay have argued about this and they, they, they criticize each other's arguments. And so, you know, Robert Allen um, in his book, um, argues he tries to look at the intellectual collections of the of the of the people doing the innovations. He wants to say, look, these guys are really not involved in the Enlightenment very much. But it turns out other people have shown that that sample is too small, and they probably were. But you're right; they're complementary, I think. And Alan's argument, which is like it begs the question: How did England come to have this configuration of high, a high wage economy and cheap energy? And and McKeer can, can sometimes explain that because he can say because they're high wage workers because they're highly skilled. Um, so I think they're complementary. And on some level, you're always going to be able to push the puzzle back one step, and and you have to kind of cut the book at some point. And say, well, we've like innovation was the answer. Maybe that's the obvious answer. Well, how do we explain that? You've explained innovation with this high, highly skilled workforce to some extent, plus all of these preconditions. You know, we could ask about how all the preconditions came to be. Is it to some extent that, you know, the world was just waiting for all of these preconditions to kind of happen to coalesce into one area and then get lucky? I I think so. So, um, you know, you can imagine a world where like they're just like some massive exogenous shocks which knocked the British economy back in the 17th or 18th, in the 18th, 19th century. And so the Industrial Revolution just doesn't happen. But I still think at this point, if you're running history, the Industrial Revolution happens in Europe. Just happened not in England, maybe because England gets you know a natural disaster destroys Manchester and London and Leeds. But but I still think you get the Industrial Revolution 50 years later in France, say, or in the Netherlands, 50, 60, 100 years later. So I think by this point, enough of the conditions were in place for it to occur. Now, if you don't have Europe, then I don't think it necessarily occurs to hundreds of years, maybe. So that that's kind of a level of contingency, I think, I think it I think makes sense. How does the simple presence or absence of warfare for long periods of time fit into this explanation? And, and you know, which explanation does that maybe fall under if it does? So Europe is a very warlike uh, polity. Um, and so the question is, is that, yeah, so war is very costly. It's very destructive. It uses up a lot of resources. So I, I would not say that war is spurring a lot of innovation at this point. Unlike, say, in World War II, in my view, I could 
there's some disagreement on this. Patrick O'Brien is writing a book about the British Navy, and he wants to argue the British Navy really was an important input into the Industrial Revolution. It's training a lot of people and so on. Um, and, and then that would be a direct link between warfare and industrialization. But setting that aside, I don't think there's a direct link. The war is destroying resources. It's very costly, these wars. The Napoleonic War really is a massive setback for, for the Industrial Revolution for Britain, in my view. But um, warfare is a product of Europe's political fragmentation. And Europe's political fragmentation does matter for industrial, industrialization, in my view, because the presence of multiple competing states in Europe relative to a single state in China, I do think helps to explain why Europe is more innovative and dynamic than China. So I would say warfare itself is probably a negative, but warfare is a consequence of political fragmentation, and political fragmentation is a positive. To be clear, that, that's a very relevant and interesting answer. But to be clear, I, I was actually asking about the the positive elements of the absence of warfare, like ah, as, yeah, as yeah. an explanatory factor of you know some air, you know some cities being exposed to long periods of peace, so that commerce and uh, you know science becomes a worthwhile yeah. pursuit in the first place. As so an explanation, in, so, so that holds for England. Uh, rest of Europe has a lot of fighting going on, but holds for England. England um, doesn't have any war in it, apart from the Civil War, which is quite extensive and, and hard fought in the mid-17th century. Then from then onwards, there's, 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 there's a little bit of violence during um, the 1680s. There's a, there's a battle on Cornwall. And then the only other violence you see in the lead-up to the Industrial Revolution are various Jacobite rebellions from Scotland coming into England. And so they're occasional, but and, and when they happen, they scare people. But by historic standards, England is very peaceful. And do they even affect the cities that become the the hub, Not the industrial really. hubs? They, 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 the Jacobites go quite far south. I think they're in Derby, uh, but in general, no. In general, no. So in general, it's a peaceful society. It's war. England's always at war, but the wars are outside England. <laughs> so yes. you can go off and fight. You can go, you know, you can go fight uh, the French in India or in the Americas, or you can fight in, in the Netherlands, but you're not fighting on English soil. And so that does mean that these, you know, it's a peaceful economy. People can devote themselves to the fruits of peace, to, to innovation, to improving their mechanical skills and, and working as shopkeepers and so on. Yeah. It was on my mind because I spoke to John Mueller recently, who wrote a book called The Stupidity of War. And among other things, he's he's uh, a little bit heterodox on this question. You know, he flips the peaceful commerce thesis, which says that uh, commerce has a pacifying effect. And he says, no, the presence of peace is what makes people interested and, yeah. you know, capable of engaging in commerce. So I was curious about if I that. They're yeah. both, yeah, they, they, the thing is, it's one of those things, the causal arrow is very hard to uh, direct. It's both true. Both are true, clearly. What I would say is China is very, very peaceful in the lead up to the Industrial Revolution. And it's good. I mean, its its economy is doing well. Like Adam Smith has positive stuff to say about it. Until um, a rebellion in the late 18th, early 19th century, China has a long period of peace in the 18th century. Um, equivalent to England, that it doesn't 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 grow. So it's not enough. Yeah. So part of what we're saying, I think economic historians have been saying this for a long time, is that you know there's a libertarians tend to really emphasize markets and trade and all those things are good. All those things matter for economic growth. But if you have if they do not generate innovation and they're not sufficient to generate innovation because you need an intellectual culture, you need people, you know, 
China had markets and commerce and trade, and it was doing fine, but it wasn't really growing. And so innovation at some point has to kick in. And of course, commerce and trade are conducive, they're inputs into innovation, but I don't think they're sufficient on their own. So you need this intellectual, cultural side of the story. So I think I know what the response is going to be, but can you help to resolve a tension for me that as I was reading the book, you at various points, you talk about um, political fragmentation as being both a help or a hindrance to to this kind of culture. The example of Europe you just gave being politically or being fragmented geographically in certain ways that leads to political fragmentation that leads to a division of power compared to China, which is much more politi- politically homogenous. But you also give on the negative side, the example of Nigeria and much of sub-Saharan Africa as being very, very fragmented, leading to a lack of interactions and, and being you know on the negative side of the ledger for, for innovation. Um, can you say something about that tension and how you resolve it? So um, all else equal, fragmentation is costly. Um, if, in a static sense, right? If you if you think about Roman Empire versus medieval Europe, Roman Empire was you know trivial tariffs between cities, basically no tariffs, basically the same interchangeable legal system. And so you know it was like modern America, right? Modern America, it's very easy to trade with, with crap technology. But modern America, it's one country, very easy to trade across all the EU now, right? Very easy to trade. You have similar regulations, similar laws. Um, it's good for Smithian growth. It's good for trade. It's good for markets. So by this logic, you know, like any, all political barriers, any political barriers, to the extent they mean different regulations, different taxes, different legal systems, tariffs, barriers to trade are going to limit the scope of a market and be bad for economic development in some some basic sense, trivial sense. So you think that medieval Europe is really disadvantaged compared to either the Roman Empire or compared to China by being so fragmented. And let alone, let's factor in that when you have borders in different countries, you also generate a higher probability of armed conflict. You know, you can, uh, which is, which was common in the Middle Ages. So borders should be bad. And they probably were on all those dimensions. On the other hand, if you have a single empire, if you do one thing that offends the emperor, Ovid offended Augustus, he was sent to the Crimea, to Ukraine, basically. Or if you're a Chinese scholar and you offend the emperor, you, you, you have nowhere to go. You've absolutely nowhere to go. Whereas in any modern or medieval Europe, if you're Descartes and you offend the French king, you go to Amsterdam or Sweden. If you're Hobbes and you need to get out of England in the 1640s, you go to Paris. If you're if if your books can't get printed in Rome, maybe they can get printed in Venice or or Cologne. So um, innovation really requires some exit valves, some fragmentation. It requires different people to try different things, different states to try different things. And the competition between states, even if it leads to war, which is costly, can generate um, innovation at the, at the level, the political level. And so it's like, it's one of these things. I think that the, the static costs of fragmentation are high, but dynamic benefits of fragmentation are great. And so this plays out differently in different parts of history, in different times. I think in different times, the trade-off will push you in different directions. But in the long run, Europe seems to benefit from being fragmented, but that doesn't mean fragmentation is always in every way a good thing. Good answer. We're coming to probably finishing up pretty soon, but I wanted to ask a few more big picture questions or maybe some questions about the contemporary world. 
You've talked about the origins of economic growth and why it started, when and where it did. But then a good part of your book also talks about why it spread, when and where it did spread. You mentioned Japan, um, but you also mentioned the Asian tiger economies. Can you can you say something about why the growth of the so-called tiger economies was difficult for economists to forecast? So um, the East Asian countries grew pretty impressively in the late 20th century, early 21st century, and caught up with many parts of the rich world. And But this was not predicted uh, by economists at the time. Why, why did they make this mistake? Well, I think they were entrapped in, 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 in a kind of um, this, this view I described earlier, a view that William Eastley calls capital fundamentalism, where they kind of thought about the capital stock as somehow being crucial, or they had very deterministic views about how growth occurs, which countries are liable to grow. They, in particular, had a had an overly rosy view of command economies, and um, they also uh, uh, had a view about um, uh, state intervention in in kind of getting all industrial uh, sectors going, so so called import substitution policies, and so all of those things made them think that economies like Brazil or uh, India were, were well placed to grow. And they were more skeptical of kind of small, smaller smaller countries like Taiwan or, or Singapore. And uh, Korea looked devastated by, by, by war. They didn't necessarily foresee um, growth, growth in um, South Korea. So these, these countries were eclectic. They didn't follow like an ideological blueprint. So that's to say Hong Kong, and South Korea looked quite different in their economic policies. Hong Kong, with the exception of its land markets, is pretty free market. South Korea had a lot more state intervention. So I should say that, you know, like predicting the success of this, 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 this region was not obvious ex ante. Um, what explains their growth, I think, what's common to all of them is um, several things. One is they're small and they were export orientated. So being export focused, why does that matter? Well, it turns out that if you, one of the big costs of intervening in, in a domestic sector, protecting your, your own industries, is that generates insiders and monopolies and rent, what economists call rent seeking, and leads to a lot of corruption and a lot of wastage. So that, that type of uh, corruption and endemic rent seeking occurred almost everywhere where states intervened in their leading economies. It didn't occur to the same degree in the East Asian countries, not because they're less corrupt or, or more virtuous, but because they're small, they had to engage in international competition. So the fact that Samsung or Hyundai were entering international markets by the 70s and 80s kind of kept them honest. So ex, being export orientated was, was a common denominator amongst these countries. And the other common denominator was a focus on human capital accumulation, on educating their workforce. And so that was also a critical element of their success. And so those two things combined really helped them get going. Another thing which matters is geography, particularly economic geography. So um, the fact that Japan was uh, the early industrializer in that region helped these countries which were near Japan and were trading a lot with Japan. And once China starts growing rapidly in the 80s and 90s, the fact they're close to China also helps them as well. So they also benefit from geography. They benefit from being close to each other. The fact they're proximate to each other meant they were learning from each other's policies. And also, as one of them grew, that was a market for another one. So there, there were a bunch of self-reinforcing processes, which I think helped, helped them. Um, 
And then I could talk more about the institutions and culture, both of which I think were favorable to, to growth. But, um, but I, I mean, that, that, that point may be, may be somewhat obvious. What, if any, predictions do you think are plausible for what currently very poor countries have the most potential for growth? So adding to my previous answer, things like political stability helped in those countries. And so I think that's been one of the big uh, disadvantages of many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Looking to the future, um, what people have said in the past 20 years is, so manufacturing is, is the root a lot of these countries followed. Like manufacturing uh, leads to industrialization, leads to urbanization. So really getting people out of agriculture. So if you look at countries which have been able to do that recently, um, as I mentioned, Bangladesh, any country which can get in on relatively low, low, low technology level levels of manufacturing, it can then work its way up the Vani ladder. So Bangladesh has been successful. Pakistan, if it, if it achieves kind of a measure of political stability, should also be able to, 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 to kind of access the fact that the whole of South Asia and Southeast Asia should be growing. That also bodes relatively well for, for Thailand, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Um, those countries have access to uh, coastal re- markets as well. Um, so those things, I think, help. But getting your institutions right is the other critical thing. So you could be in a right part of the world, able to do the right things from a technological point of view. But if your institutions are totally dysfunctional, that that, that won't, won't 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 get growing. So that was the limit. That was the problem with, say, the Philippines. But it was it was it's politically more unstable than other parts of the world. Uh, in other other parts, other areas in that part of the world. So, looking across institutions, you can see that Latin America's uh, improved a lot since the seventies and eighties, but they still they're still um, subject to kind of the election of populists who who, are there, who often reverse the improvement in institutional quality. You see them up from the technocrats. So that's the big disadvantage they face. Um, Nigeria is another country which has a huge amount of potential, but it's always been hindered by its institutions. Speaking of institutions, do you have anything to say about the possibility of charter cities as a vehicle for improved institutions? Yeah, so I think the idea is great. Uh, you know, Paul Roma has pushed that, and like I know there's you know there's an institute now dedicated towards them, but I've not. I don't think we've seen anything. I'm skeptical that a country can commit. A country which is dysfunctional institutions cannot commit to allowing a city within that country having good institutions. That's the the, the kind of the, that's the very big difficult. Question, I think um, there's there's one there's one trying to get off the ground in Honduras that's probably the most yeah. promising example I'm aware of right now called Prospera. But they're you know the government has been turned over and the political instability is hitting them and there's court battles yeah, that, about whether or not they're going to have their 50 year lease honored or. Oh yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly the issue. What do you think are still some of the biggest weaknesses of this field in general, and what are some of the the big open questions that have not been satisfactorily answered? There's been a tremendous amount of research in the last twenty years, so really like huge amounts, and and it's ongoing. So there's a huge uh, wave of of excellent high quality research. A lot more data is available now than twenty years ago. So outsiders of the field won't fully be aware of how much better the the quality of the data underlying our, our assessments are than relative to 20 years ago. So that's what made writing this book possible. So I think it's a very, um, very optimistic about the prospects of the field. I think the the main focus is now 
a lot of work's been done in England, and there's still work to be done in England. I'm doing work on England. Um, we could still say more about what was happening in England. But the biggest payoff to the, the ongoing research being done on other parts of the world, including you know Africa, Latin America, China, Japan, uh, where there seems to be like larger areas under research. Although you know under research is a relative topic, a relative. Uh, statement because loads of people are currently kind of uh, getting into this, which is which is fantastic. What book or author would you recommend as a good complement to this work? There are plenty of other books, uh, which you know I'm about to teach this book for the first time in the fall, and I'll I'll use it alongside uh, for the early period probably Guns, Germs, and Steel, which I mentioned. For the later period, uh, John McKeer's book, The Enlightened Economy. Robert Allen's book, uh, The British Industrial Revolution in a Comparative Perspective. Um, Joe Heinrich has a book called Weird, which is also great, uh, about more about the medieval period and the cultural changes which occurred. Uh, Walter Schadel has a book called Escape from Rome. Those are the books I would, I would most immediately recommend. Do you have any upcoming projects right now that you're working on you'd like to let people know about? I always have a lot of ongoing projects. I'm doing work on uh, political economy in medieval England, ongoing, but that, that, that will not be out for a while. And I've been recently doing a lot of work on the impact of the Black Death. So I've recently published a paper in the Journal of Economic Literature on the economic consequences of the Black Death. So if you're interested in epidemic disease, that's very relevant. I'm sure a lot of people are. Where can people follow you if they want to keep up to date with your goings on? Yeah, so I have a webpage, uh, which you can find if you Google me. Uh, I think it's normally the first or second thing. And then I'm on Twitter as well. I think my handle's just Mark uh, Koyama, my name. So I'm not that active on Twitter these days, but I'm tweeting a lot of stuff about the book, including teaching materials and, uh, and other links. Great. Well, I will include the book recommendations, obviously your book, uh, as well as your webpage and your Twitter The book is How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. And my guest has been Mark Koyama. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Chris. It's been great fun. That was Mark Koyama, and his book, once again, co-authored with Jared Rubin, is How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. You can find the book and other topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. If you enjoy Ideas Having Sex, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or Stitcher, and please rate and review the show. It's a small thing, but it's extremely helpful, and I read and appreciate every review I get, so thank you in advance. Until next time, I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.